Conquer Local. Come on, George, I'm happy to be here. I help leaders go from anxiety to authority under pressure. And then let's go and get it. It's an ecosystem. The hardest part here is going to be getting me to shut up on this one. Conquer Local with Vendasta, hosted by George Lee. This is the Conquer Local podcast, a show about billion-dollar sales leaders, marketers leading local economic growth, and entrepreneurs that have created their dream organizations. They want to share their secrets, giving you the distilled version of their extraordinary feats. Our hope is with the tangible takeaways from each episode, you can rewire, rework, and reimagine your business. I'm George Leith. On this episode, we welcome David Ledgerwood. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Ad10, where he leads a team of senior sales experts and provides lead-to-close execution for B2B services and tech companies ready to advance from founder-led sales to seven digits of revenue. He's a sales expert, and before starting Ad10, Ledge led sales and services for Gun.io, during which time he sold and managed more than 100,000 hours of development and 10x revenues to a mid-seven-figure run rate. He's the co-host of the Leaders of B2B podcast. Get ready, Conquerors, for David Ledgerwood, The Ledge, coming up next on this week's episode of the Conquer Local podcast. David Ledgerwood, co-founder and managing partner at Ad10, joining us today for the Conquer Local podcast. Now, David, I understand that your friends call you Ledge. Absolutely, George, and so should you. Okay. So, well, I'm going to go happy with to be it. here. Is it ledge as in legend? Uh, yeah, I, I get lots of people giving me, uh, I've, I've gotten ledge hammer. I've, I've gotten, you know, all, all variations uh, or the ledge like you too. So, you know, I'll, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> no, I love it. That's great. Thanks for joining us on the show today. And listen, this name, Ad10. That's motivating right there as a sales professional. I love that. How did you come up with that name? It's cool. So this is my 13th startup or something like that. And, you know, it's funny because I used to just do the whole like slaving over naming my company. And like that was the most important thing and, and spending hours in front of the whiteboard and, you know, all this business. And at some point I just said, you know, look, people want to make 10 times as much money as they have now uh, 10x is spoken for so I, I think this was just one of those shower thoughts and i said this is what we're gonna call it and of all the time i spent naming all these other things and trying to be uh thoughtful and and pithy uh this one was just like yeah we're just gonna do this let's go and this is the one that gets the best feedback so uh i guess go with your your instincts but that was always the the goal there is to talk about like let's quite literally tack a zero onto this business and, and see how we get there. So. No, and, and, you know, that leads to all sorts of, of thoughts around, you know, do we model it to, you know, how are we going to get there? It's, it's quite inspiring. Now, the, the other thing that we talked about in the, in the intro is you're, you're a co-host of the leaders of B2B podcast. What's that podcast all about? Yeah, we, um, this is, this is with content allies, which is a tight collaborator client, uh, almost, you know, deep partnership that, that we have with our, our company. And I've been hosting podcasts for about five years. And uh, we just had this idea that, you know, we wanted to produce a, an educational and community-based resource 
where, you know, let's quite literally talk to leaders of B2B businesses of all stripes. And when I, I talk to clients, I try to really pull out, you know, the, the stories and you know, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Where'd this thing come from? Uh, lessons learned, you know, what can we tell other founders and, and leaders and, you know, career development? And you just try to get into the, the stories of it, you know, a little bit of tactical um, execution, I guess, you know, in, in certain topics, but I just am enamored with this idea of businesses that sell to businesses. And I, I want to hear the stories, you know, all the way from the, the proverbial kitchen table where we came up with the idea to, you know, Hey, we just raised a billion dollars. I mean, there's been so many just really interesting conversations about that. And one of my favorite parts is sort of just saying, you know, hey, you're driving 100 miles an hour and you probably hit a few speed bumps along the way. What would you like to tell the founders who are, you know, driving behind you maybe so they don't hit that too? And then uh, I like to end every episode with sort of just put your, you know, near futurist hat on and, and what should everybody in B2B have on their radar? And um, it's, it's great. It's a learning experience for me too, you know, just all kinds of different ways to, to think about all kinds of different functions and types of businesses and just fascinating stuff. So one of the, one of the questions that, that I wanted to ask, because we've got this expert on our show in B2B sales, I, I had somebody say something to me here about three years ago, which really stuck me and, and I, and it's never left my, my brain uh, because I was astonished and it was a business owner in the plumbing business that sold to other businesses. And they said, the way that buyers buy in a business to business transaction is different than the way that buyers buy in a business to consumer transaction. And I might've almost got thrown out of that office with my response because I basically told that individual they were crazy because in my 30 some odd years, I don't even know where that came from. Like, is there somebody out there talking about that now? Maybe I'm crazy. There are people who know me quite well that would probably validate that. So I'd love to hear from you. Like, where in the hell does that come from? Because in, in all my years in business, I'm like, I, I don't get that. Yeah, I have conversations all the time with my uh, B2C brethren. And, uh, you know, there's different... I guess there's different varieties and I don't know if it's like selling differently, you know, but I do think that B2B in general, at least in my context, you know, it's like you're very often talking about a larger ticket size. You know, people spend a lot more money business to business in, in single transactions and contracts. So I think, and I could be wrong with this, but at least, you know, in the things I come into contact with, there's a person to person element that may not be there where, you know, when you're selling to consumers and that could be, you know, sort of um, branded direct to consumer retail, you know, any of, of those different things. Um, there's less and less human contact now. And my experience has been that uh, the larger the ticket size, adding one, two, three, four zeros to that you really do get into an expertise led or consultative type of sale, which maybe comes in for a luxury good or, you know, something of that nature on the consumer side. But I would say it, it is materially different. Although I also think that people confound marketing and sales 
when they they talk about this. So um, ultimately, you know, in a B2B context, someone brings me in a lead and I do a call or a demo or something of that sort with them, I have to dig in in great detail to their their current circumstances and what are the solutions are they using and, you know, how are they solving the problem now? What's the actual problem? How do you get six different people to say yes to this thing in this large company? And, and there's all types of complexity there that I don't know if that's all selling, but it certainly is the the operations or, or systems of selling that as far as I know, you don't end up with uh, a lot of that in the, the B2C context. But, you know, ultimately, I think people do want in every context not to be essentially sold to or convinced. They want to be respected. They want to be able to talk about, you know, what they value and feel as if they, they're being heard. And so in that sense, I would say it's it's the same people, I do believe, buy from people they like who have demonstrated, you know, an expertise in being able to efficiently solve whatever need they have there. Um, but, you know, certainly on the larger the dollar value and the ticket size of whatever you're selling, I think there's more and more and more complexity of relationship that comes into it. Yeah, I, I think that you're you're disagreeing with me very politely, but at the same time, you might be validating what I'm saying, because when uh, when I go out as a consumer to buy something that um, is is expensive, <laughs> has complexity. Um, I'm going to do a bunch of research and in my analogy of that business owner, what they were saying in a business to business sale, um, I got to get across from the person I've got to do deep discovery. I've got to ask a bunch of questions. My argument is the buyer is doing a lot of that research before they ever talk to a sales professional or a consultant. And that's why my argument is that whether it's business to consumer or business to business, we need to have a great virtual doorway because all of that research is happening online. And if you wait until you talk to the prospect, you might've missed out on a whole bunch of opportunity because the research was done. So that's my argument around B2B and B2C. Um, but to your point around complexity. So then when we're, when we're selling things that are more complex or have a, harder onboarding or adoption motion, what are some recommendations that you have to help folks add another zero and, and get those larger deals uh, and those larger investments? Yeah, you make a great point. I'll, I'll say that first, that I think we do know now that there's some statistic that's eluding me, but some, you know, in a broad B2B sale of, you know, X million dollars, of stuff, the time that a, a sales rep, a traditional sales rep is involved has dropped substantially. And no matter what you're selling, you want to provide, I love that, you know, the digital front door and the really good experience and, hey, let's use video, let's use written, let's make sure we can get in front of every question that could possibly be asked and provide that information in the most friction-free way so that when someone does have to deal with you know a sales rep or you know a consultant like me that it's easy for them and and also that i would argue it's much easier for us you know in sales that you know let's allow prospects to self-select out and give them as much information as possible to make a great decision and when they just need to talk to us about you know the two or three things that actually just apply to them and they maybe want to you know, customize the product or 
the solution. So I, I do completely agree with that. Let's assume that all those things happen and they do get to talk to a person like me. You know, I, I really just think it's our job to make it as easy as possible for them to make a good decision and uh, and also to be creative with the solution. So I saw mostly services, a little bit of you know software and uh, very often customized and very large, you know, sort of million dollar plus types of things. And uh, people want to they want to know that it really, really applies to them in a, a high ROI fashion. And they I think they want to talk to somebody, uh, particularly in B2B that you know, has sat in their shoes or at least has studied the industry and knows the things that um, maybe they don't even know re relative to uh, KPIs, ROI. How are you measured? How is your performance measured? What do I need to do for you so that when you go to your next budget meeting, you look like a hero? And who else needs to be at the table that I can make sure that we all bring them in and all those perspectives are welcome? What I don't expect people to do, and I'll tell them this, you know, let's say, I don't know, I'm talking to a marketing manager or, or someone like that who wants to buy a service. I'll always tell them, you know, look, look, I've been doing this for a decade and I don't expect you to take what I just told you in 20 minutes and go sell this thing internally. You don't have all the information, nor could I expect you to have all that information. And it would be disingenuous of me not to be your partner and advocate in that please tag me into other things not because i want to go above your head and you know talk to your boss or you know you don't have the budget or the throw like i know all those things but what i'm saying is it would be completely unreasonable for someone who doesn't talk about this thousands of hours in a row to make a plausible strategic sale internally and, uh, you know, so often as, as business buyers, you know, will delegate to, you know, essentially the marketing associate or the, you know, the intern or something of that nature and say, go build me a spreadsheet and compare all the really complex things out there and help me whittle down the list. And, and I talk to those folks and I just say, listen, you know, no problem. I can try to fit into your matrix or spreadsheet. And there's a lot of intangible things that could lead you to choose a really poor relationship that actually doesn't meet the overall objectives when you try to you know, boil it down to that level. No, thank you for that. That's some really good advice when working with that type of a prospect. One question that I get asked a lot when I'm working with, uh, with sales leaders, um, how can we hire better talent? What should we be looking for? How do we attract that talent? How do we adjudicate that talent in the interview process so that we make less poor hires? By the way, made a lot of poor hires over the years. I also have made some amazing hires um, and I find sometimes it's a numbers game, but I'd love to hear from you. When you are hiring salespeople or advising people on hiring talent, what, what do you look for? You know, I, I saw you were gonna ask this and I, I almost said, let's scratch that one. And then I, you know, uh, more shower moments. And I kind of said, you know, I'm going to talk about how I approach this because frankly, I have not done well with this. And people ask me this question all the time and hope that I have done well. And I haven't. And how did I go about solving this problem? I purchased third-party help. 
you know, that I know now of myself in, even in my space, like I am a really good closer and executor and sort of business builder. And frankly, I am awful at this particular thing. And I had to surround myself with people who can source and hire and train and bring on folks that ultimately I hope to just, you know, read the documentation and, and, you know, sort of read my mind and execute. So I have this blind spot and I have found that in my hiring process, I was able to, and unfortunately too commonly would project amazing results onto this person and just overlook all the potential red flags because I wanted so badly to get out of hiring and dealing with this at all. So in that sense, what I learned is that I don't know the answer to this question. And I highly encourage hiring professionals who do hire salespeople and who have a successful collection of hiring salespeople. I think it's one of the hardest things that you have to do in business. And it's also much more than any other role. It's ridiculously expensive because you have sort of the negative leverage and opportunity cost of doing it badly will put you in the spot where not only are you not making the revenue from the sales because they're not successful, but you paid them a lot of money and spent the time to onboard them and do all those things. And you lost the time to do that again. So there's a compounding uh, negative feature of, of this hire. And it's so important that if I was going to tell anybody to how to do this, I would tell them hire a consultant or, you know, a firm that you can outsource the staffing of sales to and pay a great deal of money to them to do it right. Because I have not solved this problem and that's what I ultimately did there. So what I would look for is the intangible of saying, I just want somebody who's as good at this as I am. And I would need a professional to pull that out of my head because I still haven't cracked that nut and I couldn't explain it to you if I wanted to. Well, and thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that with, with uh, our audience, because I find when I talk to leaders, they will say, some days I'm really good at it and I've surrounded myself with an amazing team. And maybe a lot of that was luck. Um, and then a lot of us, kind of fall on the sword and say, yeah, we've, we've also screwed it up. Um, one thing I wanted to validate with you, if you had to make a change or look back, uh, one thing that I look back at is that I, I expect the best out of people and I expect that, but I've been slow to fire. Um, and when I look back at it, that's the bigger regret that I have is leaving somebody in the organization that, that was hurting the organization too long because you were hoping that you could just get them there. Is that been your experience as well? I have had that experience in the past where I ran a company into the ground because I was just trying so hard to make, you know, the salaries that I was paying pay off. And, you know, ultimately, sometimes it's just not the right thing. And you should be if if you're going to trust yourself to do hiring and not spend an incredible amount of money on the front end to get it right through the professionals like I described. And you're absolutely right. I, I did work for one of my you know, CEO mentors the first time I ever saw somebody really run a sales force. 
And she was relentless. And, you know, it was like, you make your numbers or, or you're fired. And, and I just, wow, like that kind of stung. But then, you know, I just realized like, that's the way you need to do it. And I also think people who have been in the sales game kind of understand that, right? And you need to move very quickly. And, and, and that applies to all roles. I just think that sales does have that sort of double edge of, you know, negative compounding interest. If you, you know, let something hang out there badly because every one of those leads or, or prospects or opportunities that had a bad experience, they're probably never coming back. So, you know, not only did you waste an incredible amount of money, you know, trying to train and hold on to somebody, but you probably just lost a lot of potential revenue, you know, in there as well. So I, I resonate, uh, I hate firing people. You know, I, I am a nice person who tries to, you know, be overly kind. And I've also had to surround myself with uh, realists and executors who, you know, do not let me put on those rose colored glasses. And, um, you know, so as a, as an entrepreneur, you know, sort of install those, uh, let's call them guardrails, you know, on your own weaknesses and surround yourself with people that will prevent you from making, you know, those mistakes. I, I think that's a really important lesson. So I wanted to ask this question, if you could put one, like if you could put your finger on one thing, what causes a sales program to fail? I think that I'll, I'll couch this under the broad umbrella of sales and marketing collaboration, but I'll say it in a very specific way that what I am very surprised by is every organization we walk into, I've never seen someone do this exactly the way that I, I would want it done. And, and that is that every call or every experience you have with a prospect or customer, they're, they're telling you questions, they're telling you needs, objections, they're reacting positively to something. They're, you know, they're giving you insights into the industry or their own company. How and where as an organization are you collecting all that and literally feeding that line by line you know, in an effective way back up to the top of the funnel. So I think these things fail because we often have learned to, to segment out the functions and, you know, marketing and sales and sales and finance. And it's all just like sort of don't like each other, right? Like we've set up this, I don't know, you know, business school inspired separation of the functions in order to get more efficient or, you know, whatever it is, you can read all kinds of reasons. Uh, but what I consistently see in organizations failing to, and I'll, I'll say execute on revenue and maybe not sales, why in the hell aren't those customer interactions and interviews fed in an efficient way back up to the top of the funnel for all the positioning purposes? Um, if you're a student of Lean Startup, you know, you'll be you'll commonly hear things like, you know, well, we do customer discovery interviews and we, you know, we talk to people and, and check out our ideas and, you know, kind of validate them. That's literally happening on every sales call, every single day. You have an unlimited flow, presuming you actually have sales calls of feedback that can go into educating those prospects at the, the very top of the funnel. And marketing has the remarkable capacity to be able to reach people you know, 100,000 to one, 20,000 to one, 1,000 to one, instead of one to one with very, very expensive time on a call 
basically doing that customer interview and then doing nothing with it. So I think failure of revenue programs happens because the intelligence that's being unearthed on every one of these calls doesn't go anywhere and the business doesn't, you know, iterate and nobody's telling the product team. And, you know, so I, I think of revenue very holistically, the, you know, yes, those of us in sales, we need to be at the bottom of the funnel. We need to close and make deals. Like that's really important. But if we don't feed all that intelligence back to the rest of the organization in a way they can hear and process it, we are guaranteed to continue to have many, many bad calls and a very low conversion rate and not be able to, you know, advance the business, you know, in that way. So I think sales programs and fail because of, of that primary reason that some companies just segment out the sales organization in the same way they segment everybody out and there's no um, cross sharing of ideas and, and iteration. And, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, and the, the easiest way to find it is just go talk to people in the sales organization and then talk to people in the product organization. If they use terms like they um, and not we, uh, then you know you've got that right. segmentation issue. Um, now, we talked about if I could be on all the calls and I could adjudicate those calls and I could find the nuggets or find the things that we need to change. And I go back to, I've been doing this for a long time. The way that we used to manage was you get in the car and drive with the rep. Um, go see the customer, right. then take the call over, give the shit away, um, and then come back and say to the rep, why can't you do what I do? <laughs> so it was horrible coaching. Um, now that I look back at it at the end of the day, I think we do a better job now because we have technology. And of the 18,000 customer communications that happened in our building yesterday, I'm able to go into a transcription. I can run keyword analysis. I can ask, were there more questions that were being asked today than there was three months ago? And I can get all that data to figure out if the, the initiatives were moving forward. So based on your experience, how has this genesis of all this B2B sales tech helped us? And, and what have you saw in, in that growth over the last decade? Because there's a new, you know, Gong, Clary, there's a new brand built every single day to help us put more science behind sales. There absolutely is. And you're just now at the, I think, the very tip of imagining what this machine learning and AI, you know, types of stuff can do. And I would encourage anybody at any point in the business cycle to invest into a proper sales stack and marketing stack. And the interesting thing is that a lot of this stuff becomes really like a data integration or almost like what you would call like the former CIO role. You know, everybody talks about how, how marketing has really become all about, you know, data and, and marketing technology and, you know, processing all that business intelligence. I would argue that now we're seeing that move down the funnel to sales and and you're right that all that stuff is now possible or beginning to be possible and better and you can flow those statistics up but do you have in the business the proper you know business intelligence and you know especially data warehousing infrastructure to surface that data in enough time to do anything about it um, so we've become very very good at you know accumulating data and customer behaviors and all those types of things at, at the top of funnel for you know the customer facing marketing technology we can also do that for sales and we we should do that and there's an amazing amount of development there um 
you know, I've been doing this long enough. So have you that, you know, there was a day when we didn't talk to our phones and have magical things happen <laughs> and didn't have speakers in our home that, you know, took our, our, our feedback and did stuff with it. That same technology is now feeding into uh, the idea that I can understand sentiment and I can understand if people are asking questions and are my reps spending so much time talking that they never ask a single question to the prospect. Uh, what is the, you know, what's the body of work on a call? How can we broadly make lessons that we can feed back you know, in, into a coaching scenario? So I applaud anybody that deals with uh, 18,000, you know, sort of sales interactions, because I, I live in a place where, and, and prefer to live in a place where, you know, I basically work with tiny, tiny companies, you know, and, the zero I like to add is the one between six and seven digits. So, <laughs> um, you know, I have no desire whatsoever to work in a large scaled, you know, operation like you're talking about because it introduces this level of complexity that is no longer, you know, startup-y and, and scrappy. And, you know, that's just where I choose to live. But uh, I resonate greatly with trying to scale these solutions that I'm, I'm talking about and I can execute, you know, almost on like a manual basis, you know, where I, I like to go back and actually annotate all of my call recordings and I can roughly keep up with that because we're just dealing with, you know, small companies and, you know, big contracts. So we don't have to do, you know, dozens and dozens of calls a day or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of calls, like, like you're dealing with, but, um, I will also say that the space is evolving so much that it's probably a very difficult procurement problem to buy software and commit to software because every single day, a new piece of sales tech comes out. That's the next most important call transcribing automatic coaching magic machine. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's going to begin to look like the, uh, the MarTech you know, ecosystem picks that you see now where there are, you know, 20,000 possible point solutions that, that you can buy and uh, your IT people or whoever is responsible for integrating that uh, will no longer be your friend. So it is a challenge. I think I'm glad that there's there's innovation. I'm also glad I'm not in charge of it. It's almost like you read my inbox today because those are all the subject lines from everybody trying to sell me the latest thing. Um, Seven, you, you talked about seven figures. We talked about add one zero. If there was, uh, I always love to give our guests the one last word. So people are like, hey, Ledge, that sounds great. I'd love to add a zero to my earnings or to my revenue or to whatever it might be. You'd leave our audience with one word of advice to add one zero from the co-founder and managing partner of the brand with that title. What would it be? I will absolutely go back to that that marketing intelligence tied into to sales. And, and if you have to do it manually, do it manually. Someone, and it can be an analyst, it can be the rep, it could be someone on your team. Watch every sales call and write down the five things, right? The positive reactions, the insights, the needs, the questions and the objections. And if you do that and you keep that even, and I'm talking, keep it in a spreadsheet if you have to. Do it every single call and do it for like 20, 50 calls even. Sort that out. It's just a couple of hours of work. 
and then look at those top questions. You can actually look at almost make a basic pie chart of what do our prospects want to know and what do they want to achieve? Then take that and turn those into marketing prompts. So you can make content prompts at the top of the funnel, answer those questions. Why are you paying a sales rep to answer those questions for you one-to-one -one when you can provide that information? And if you are the type of business that does calls and someone you know pre-schedules that call, I recommend do a pre-call sequence where you drip out the top three things that people wanna know on those calls prior to them coming on. You would not believe this, no one wants you think no one wants more email. And I literally get people come onto the calls when we do this and they say, I loved your emails. Thank you so much for sending them to me. Who says that? And I think it's because you actually used the intelligence from other prospects. You intuited and created a relatively statistically significant model and you provided that intelligence and information and knowledge ahead of time and they didn't have to ask you. And that's just different than what everybody else does. So, you know, do that because then the half an hour call that you have is actually about them. And it's not about you having to fill in the gaps on all the basic stuff that you could have told them with a video or you could have told them with, you know, a blog post or whatever it is. There's top of funnel and then there's what I would call mid funnel, like sales enablement materials. You can take all that intelligence and also create those. So it helps the people at the bottom of the funnel you know, just pre-educate and continue to educate and continue to warm and make those prospects happy over time without having to just talk at them. And I, I think that that makes such a tremendous difference. Like just do that activity. And I know most people listening don't do it. And I'm telling you, that's the thing that has helped me drive up average contract value and the call to close ratio in every business that we've touched. Well, Ledge, I really appreciate that feedback because I, I concur. I find that people give it lip service. They don't actually do it. Those that do it are more successful and they're driving those deals that add one zero. David Ledgerwood, co-founder and managing partner at Add One Zero, our guest this week on the Conquer Local podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really fun. Great episode from The Ledge, David Ledgerwood. And here's the thing that I like about his conversation. You must have alignment between sales, marketing, product, and even in customer service, I would add to it. So if we are getting feedback from our customers or we're getting feedback from people who are not becoming our customers, why aren't we looking at that information? Why aren't we taking that information back to the product teams, aligning it with marketing so they can put the right message? And then we can attract into our sales pipeline the ideal customer profile and will be more successful if we take all of those learnings and put it together in a perfect customer journey. If you like David Ledgerwood's episode discussing lead to sales execution, let's continue the conversation. Check out episode 540, The Power of Sales Discovery with Brandon Bornison, or episode 504, Zero Waste Marketing, and $100,000 plus websites with Andy Crestadina. Please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks for joining us this week on the Conquer Local Podcast. My name is George Leith. I'll see you when I see you. You've been listening to the Conquer Local Podcast presented by Vendasta. Tune in next week for a new episode. Guest discovery and produced by Sully Adams. 
Marketing by Rory Lawford, Nicole Lozon, and Solomon Adam. Executive Producers, Brendan King, George Leaf, and Solomon Adam. Recorded at Vendasta Headquarters on the Canadian Prairies.